Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pekulski. As always, we are bringing you the world's best guests. Today is a repeat guest, one of our favorite guests of all time, Dr. Jordan Shallow, joins us to talk about bodybuilding and why he is shifting his focus away from powerlifting into bodybuilding and his exact approach to doing so. He's got a very unique mind, a very unique approach. And I think you guys are going to garner tremendous amounts of value from this conversation. We sat down live in person in Burlington, Ontario, Canada, and we chatted in Jordan's studio. And if you guys want to watch this video on YouTube, you can do that also. Uh, incredible conversation with Dr. Jordan Shell. He's always bringing so much value and such a complete look. That's one of the things I value about him most is um, he just tends to look a little bit deeper than everybody else. If you guys don't know Dr. Shello, he's also the uh, owner and originator of Prescript Level 1 and 2, a great certification that I highly recommend for everyone who's interested in understanding a deeper level of exercise. He's working toward building his own certification now, um, PSPT, so personal uh, Prescript Personal Training Certification, which he talks about a little bit. So we're very much looking forward to that. Thank you so much to Dr. Shell. If you're not already following him on social media, do so. You can also find him on uh, RX Radio. And he's going to tell you a little bit about that. And so much more on this amazing podcast brought to you by realmushrooms.com. Ladies and gents, if you are someone who is experiencing stress or sleep issues, I've been experimenting lately with three specific mushrooms done every day before bed. Oftentimes, I'll just turn it into, I'll actually make a shake. I'll add a half a scoop or even up to a scoop of collagen protein, which obviously you guys know I get from Bubs. And uh, I add that into a smoothie and consume that before bed. And it's really been helping my sleep. So the collagen is significantly improving my blood sugar regulation. The, the amino acid glycine is incredibly useful for regulating blood sugar and calming the nervous system. Glycine is very, very uh, predominant in collagen. And then I'll add in three grams of reishi mushroom from real mushrooms, three grams of lion's mane, and three grams of cordyceps. And those three mushrooms before bed has really shown tons of scientific data uh, to actually reset circadian rhythm. So if you're someone who's having a hard time falling asleep, or if maybe you're, you've got some jet lag from travel, uh, resetting circadian rhythms, getting you into a deeper phase of sleep much faster. Those three mushrooms combined is exceptional. And realmushrooms.com is hooking you guys up with 30% off. If you haven't already purchased from them, first time users are getting 30% off. Use the code Ben at realmushrooms.com. Use the code Ben to get absolutely hooked up. I suggest you get all three. And if you feel like you're coming down with a little bit of... Um, you know, maybe need a little immune boost to be coming down with something. Uh, reishi mushrooms, three grams. Actually, I'll use it three grams three times a day. If I feel myself feel a little run down and it's almost like an immediate boost. I absolutely love my mushrooms. You guys know that. So thank you to Real Mushrooms for continuing to support this podcast and continue to support, support you on your journey to living your greatest life in a body you love. Enjoy the show with Dr. Jordan Shell. You've made an announcement to me and now I'm announcing it to the world. Yeah. That you want to shift from uh, what I would say is a very successful powerlifting, I don't know if it's a career, but like a journey. Right. To better. now you want to bodybuild. Yeah. Why? It's a different challenge. I think, I mean, it's hard because the baseline of strength that I have will give me an undoubted upper hand in the pursuit, but I feel like bodybuilding can be done in a much simpler fashion than in what is commonly seen in most circles. Totally. And it's just like the proof of concept that like it doesn't have to be necessarily difficult. So it's like, I want to prove. So, sorry, that. say that again? It doesn't necessarily have to be difficult. <laughs> it was just like, 
It, it really doesn't. Man, I, this is literally, it's really funny. It's like I paid you to say that. I'm verbatim. I've been telling you about that for so long. I'm like, you're just beating your head against the wall. Yeah. And doing shit wrong. And yeah. So what does that look like to make it simple? I think the big perspective shift that like the conventional bodybuilding world misses is the idea of progressive overstimulus rather than progressive overload. Right. There's been a resurgence of progressive overload in the bodybuilding community, which has been great. Um, it allows at least for one specific part of adaptation to be quantified and progressed. But I think there's so many different yardsticks for progress that we can look at when driving stimulus as the overarching thing that we're chasing, you know, inherently or, you know, to subsequently to adapt to is that progressive overstimulus is what we should be chasing. So understanding like the different, you know, the different yardsticks of progress that we can assign to each exercise and which exercise will best suit, you know, the objective outcome of each one of these yardsticks, right? Like I use the example of CrossFit. You know, CrossFit uses barbells to build conditioning. It's like, why do that when we have an assault bike? You'd never use an assault bike to build your squat. You wouldn't overhead squat an assault bike. So why are you going to use a barbell to build conditioning, right? It's the wrong tool for the wrong job at the wrong time often. So it's like understanding the best tools that correlate with all the different stimulus, stimuli that exist under this umbrella and which can be simultaneously progressed at the same time. Right. Understand your, you know, your KPIs or your markers whether that's performance, whether that's sleep, whether that's, you know, hunger, whether that's sex drive, whether that's, um, you know, your performance in the gym, mental clarity from a subjective standpoint and allowing that to, you know, have a wave or a vein of auto-regulation in your programming. Like, it sounds like a lot and it's all big words, no, but it's, it's like... I get it. So there, there's um, downstream effects and then there's, there's like acute short-term um, stimuli, right? So the way I articulate it is I take a systems approach to bodybuilding, right? And it sounds like it's a similar thing that you're talking about. It's like we're looking at all the different systems that we need to progress and ultimately stress and uh, and tax to adapt. Similar concept. like So like walking through, when, when I say systems approach, it could be like, okay, I got to progress the nervous system, the muscular system, the cardiovascular system, the uh, skeletal system, like all these things need to progress, the soft tissues. I think it's the understanding your inherent baseline across all of those systems, which is going to give you an upper hand in programming, where a lot of people adopt exercise prescription based off of a baseline signature that's not theirs, mm -hmm. right? So they adopt a baseline signature of someone who maybe has a better aerobic system than them, or maybe has a higher base in strength than them. Like I look at it ultimately like plate spinning, right? Just totally. like the, yeah. the parlor trick of keeping all these plates spinning and understanding that like for me, from a strength perspective, at least with compound movements, those plates are spinning quite fast. So it's like, where are my, you know, where can I deprioritize those movements in lieu of other movements that tax other systems that will give me a greater yield on that investment of time in totally. the session? Lowest, Could, um, lowest amount of stimulus for the maximum effect. Right. So like just looking at it from almost like a, a training economy standpoint, mm. like what are the economical yields that allow me for the greatest return on my investment of time? Um, and that way I'm not left chasing novelty in the gym and I can be really specific and understand, you know, exercise order, exercise execution, all the way down to the level of, you know, system or energy system. And then I can just drive that stimulus and stoke that fire and make sure that th there's no wasted, there's no wasted reps, there's no wasted time. So someone listening, how do they start to, to decode what you're saying there? So is it like, what, what is the lowest order of, um, 
you know, operations to address? So for me, it's, I'm coming in with a strong base from a strength, strength perspective. So CNS load, which I think in itself is worth diving into a little bit and understanding that a lot of times what we often attribute to CNS fatigue is an accumulation of PNS fatigue. So understanding the difference between central nervous system and peripheral nervous system fatigue, like a, a bodybuilder will drive a lot of peripheral nervous system fatigue. What's the difference between central and peripheral nervous system? I'm glad I asked. Central nervous system is your brain, your spinal cord, right? Where your peripheral nervous system is all of the ancillary spinal nerves that go out and innervate your muscles that create contractions, or more importantly, I think from a fatigue standpoint, co-contractions, right? So what degree does my brain have to be active in a bicep curl? What, that's the C5 ventral spinal nerve goes out to the bicep, causes some sort of depolarization, sarcoplasmic reticulum, some calcium release, we elicit, you know, uh, muscle contraction. That's not taxing on my central nervous system. My brain and my spinal, like, huh, out you get, like it's not that hard. So central nervous system fatigue, if I'm trying to groove a 750 squat, there's a lot of feedback, right? There's a lot coming in, there's a lot going out, there's a lot working into the brain. There's, you know, I would say that basketball is a far more, or golf maybe, a far more taxing central nervous system pursuit than something like bodybuilding because you're dealing a lot at the level of the central nervous system, understanding the central nervous system is the brain and the spinal cord, whereas like bodybuilding is very much peripheral. So I would say I have a stronger base just coming from such a strong training bias towards one system that I, you know, my central nervous system threshold is very high. That plate is spinning very fast. So I need to start looking at, you know, maybe driving volume as a priority over intensity because intensity and coordination and co-contraction for multi-joint compound movements, I do very well, very efficiently. Um, and that's large in part to the adaptations made at the central nervous system. So for me, it's really, and that's, that's unique. Most people don't come in with one plate already spinning very fast. So a lot of it could be looking for you who are listening that aren't necessarily coming in with a strong training bias, a strong system that's already running that will immediately deprioritize that system and allow you to start to look elsewhere, you know, using volume, using density from an aerobic capacity standpoint to start to challenge other systems you might be lacking. Knowing how to align exercises that fit as very good indicators of performance across all of these systems is a good way to start. So, you know, strength of a quad extension is not necessarily going to be something that gives us a accurate insight, a clear view into our body's ability to actually create systemic strength because it's, it's, it's isolated, it's devoid of any co-contraction or can be, it can be executed with minimal co-contraction where a squat cannot exist without minimal co-contraction or maximum co-contraction to make sure that the form is maintained. So it's like picking the right figureheads almost to create these indexes for exercise that increase in complexity towards the ultimate challenge of that system, right? And think of it like flipping through a phone book. Pakulski, good example, P. Or maybe a radio station might be better. Seek and scan. The fuck, who listens to radio anymore? Remember when you used to like go on long car rides? Yeah, of course. The seek versus the scan. Right. Right. So one is flipping from frequency to frequency that is received by the transmitter. One is just going 89.9, 80 or 90, 90.1, 90.2, just f f scanning through the, the frequencies to see what, uh, what is out there. 
So I see a lot of times when people organize exercises, they don't understand the index, like the phone book, for example. The phone book, so the phone book for those of you kids listening was this thing that we used to go to. They, they would drop it <laughs> off, depending on the size of your town, it could be very small, very big. It was, a, it was all the people that lived in your town's phone numbers based off of last name. But the phone book had white pages and the yellow pages. So white pages were for the business and, or sorry, yellow pages were for business and white pages were for personal or residential. Are you old enough to remember that? Yeah, of course. Come on. I'm only seven years. You're in 83? 81. 81. I'm only nine years younger than you. Nine years younger. <laughs> Again, the aging thing. <laughs> You're aging in reverse. So l let's stick with this example of white pages and yellow pages. So these are two indexes in this book. Both follow, you know, alphabetical order. One is for business, one is for personal. So what the goal is let's identify the adaptations we want to make, that we need to make, our lowest hanging fruit, our highest yield, our most economical choices for exercise selection based off of an overarching adaptation in the same way that the overarching indexes in these in the phone books is personal and, um, and business. Then let's order them, not by chronological order, because that would be silly, but let's order them by complexity. Right or um, a, a barrier of entrance from most com or least complex to most complex. So the uh, one that comes to mind is always the big three, right? The big three, McGill's big three. This is your podcast, so I'm not going to go off the deep end of why I don't like this. But maybe we can infer the the inefficiencies that arrive out of the system by using this analogy of the phone book. The big three, the bird dog, the curl up, and the side plank, are essentially isolated attempts at testing the capacity of anti-lateral flexion, anti-rotation, and anti-flexion extension of the spine, right? So bird dog would be more anti-rotation with this offset quadruped stance. The um, side plank would be a more anti-lateral flexion, not that either is exclusive, right? Side plank can have an anti-rotation component to it as well. Um, and then the curl up probably the most pure to its taxonomy is anti-flexion extension. Let's put those three at the top and go, okay, these are the simplest, most refined, lowest barrier of entry to spinal stabilization through three planes of movement, if we ascribe to the triplanar model. How is it that we could make incremental jumps in the stimulus of anti-rotation, anti-lateral flexion, anti-flexion extension, right? So one might look at the bird dog, for example, and think, and this is where my brain goes, the bird dog is actually step two. I would say step one in anti-rotation is probably a dead bug. Why? Because we have greater reference point with our entire spine stabilized on the ground before we suspend our spine in space on this offset quadruped position. So now we have a new top of the index and we go, okay, we have dead bug. Now we have bird dog. Well, where do we go from there? Well, the bird dog can be dynamic, right? We can do offset and reps. We can do offset um, shoulder flexion and hip extension. We could add weight or we could go to something like a single leg RDL. We go to single leg, leg RDL supported. Well, that's gonna be you know one degree closer to a supported bird dog position. So we can use external support to broaden our base of support to make it more stable. And a single leg RDL with a contralateral support being a incremental step forward towards ultimately the single RDL unloaded and then ipsilaterally, contralaterally yeah. loaded, right? So using these different indexes and just knowing how to scale it, now exercise prog progression becomes really easy because it's all performance-based. Just creating like a hierarchy of how to progress from X to That's y. it, but the biggest thing that's difficult for most people is understanding the similarities in overarching adaptation that each index can provide, mm. right? Like you, we can look at exercises that benefit bicep hypertrophy. It's like we have a high cable bicep curl, a seated preacher curl, 
and a, like a lengthened shoulder extended curl. It's like, what is going to drive the most stimulus for hypertrophy? It's like, well, which can drive the greatest amount of output? Probably going to immediately deprioritize a high cable bicep curl if otherwise unsupported. My arm just floating off an infinite space. My ability to internally stabilize versus like, you know, in a preacher curl. And then you have to think too, the mechanical tension that we're going to derive from a fully lengthened bicep. Um, is going to be greater probably in the preacher curl from driving output for being supported in this mid-range and being stronger. Or we can make the argument that in a more lengthened position, we can drive more mechanical tension, which seems to be like our superlative driver of, of um, hypertrophy. So we're going to deprioritize the high cable bicep curl. However, the high cable bicep curl carries with it secondary and tertiary adaptations that may make it an effective exercise, an economical exercise selection for those who struggle with getting into the overhead position, right? If I have an inability to maintain my shoulder position here, how am I ever going to press or operate in any degree of abduction greater than that? Let's inoculate that shoulder position, not with a rotator cuff exercise, but with a, you know, with a bicep drill. So we can start to, you know, hide this, uh, the vegetables in the spaghetti sauce, so to speak, by understanding that exercises carry with it a primary, a secondary, and a tertiary adaptation. So now all of a sudden, when I look at a high cable bicep curl, I might have that high up in an index for economical returns for rotator cuff stability or shoulder function, however you want to title that. So I think it's being able to clearly identify all of the different taxonomies, the different families, the different overarching stimulus, and then being able to index and scale accordingly. What are those? That was the next question. Still. Yeah, how, how do you start to break that down in your brain of all the, the indexes? Um, I think I start from a point of what I'm lacking, right? So pain and performance can be very good guides to tell you, you know, pain, there's a Seinfeld quote from his uh, show called Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. He talks about stubbing his toe. And he's like, pain is knowledge really fast. He's like, I didn't know that the table was there. And I stubbed my toe. So it was an acute awareness of that. So like if I have elbow pain, for example, um, so this could be something where, you know, if I'm doing an overhead dumbbell tricep extension and I get elbow pain, this tells me something about the condition or my capacity to maintain this level of shoulder flexion or abduction and external rotation. So it's like, well, this pain means that I need to create a roadmap from like a safe mode. So like safe mode is when a computer stops working, it reboots at a time in which it was operating properly. You might lose some files where something started to corrupt and then the computer kind of went awry. So finding a range of motion where I can operate where my, my elbow doesn't hurt and then laying out a roadmap to help improve the, the capacity for that position. So pain is one and performance is another. So if I find myself disproportionately weak at a particular movement, I'm going to start to create, I'm going to put that heading at the top. Is it hip extension? Is it knee flexion? Is it knee extension? You know, start to fill in the gaps of like the subcomponents that make up the movement that I'm weak at. So like, for example, right now, my leg press is hilariously weak, which is funny because I squat a lot of weight, but it's weak because I have no capacity to, to maintain any sort of volume. Like I would go through a squat session and do four reps in a training session. They were heavy, but I have no, that other system needs to be swung out to that, to that, uh, that's that, um, the precipice of that adaptation, which is like, I need to drive high output. I'm good at high skill, but I'm not necessarily good at that high output. So my threshold for, you know, being able to, whether it's at a cellular level, buffer uh, hydrogen ions, or what most people refer to as like lactic acid, whether that's at the cell or at the liver, how is it that I can make this system more efficient? So that's going to be something where I start to drive more volume. And that's based off the fact that, you know, could at one point squat in the 700s, but seven plates on a leg press is stymieing me for eight to 10 reps. 
that's a discrepancy in performance. So using pain and performance for me are really good guides to start to figure out where it is I need to allocate some of my resources to, and then what categories when I break down, why does that pain occur, or what system is causing a decrease in performance, that helps fill in for me the the overarching titles, the overarching um, you know chapters that I need to index by or higher create that hierarchical you order of exercise. By body part by body part, are you doing it systemically? Uh, that's tough because systemically would indicate like you know how much. Am I going into like the you know aerobic system and working on CV? Is that kind of the question? No, I mean, um, let's say you've got a knee problem, right? And you need to train that specifically to adapt around the knee problem, right? But you don't have an elbow or shoulder problem, so would you train those two things differently? So this one may have to have a degree of like, um, you know, call it recovery time, call it relearning movement patterns, right. relearning nervous system contraction. That may be completely different as far as like, you know, I have strength here, and now I'm going to start building volume and output. Do you, do you train body parts differently, or do you do you believe the whole system is? Or right now, are you training the whole system the same way? Um, I've always trained lower and upper body differently because we've evolved, and this is just my thought process. We've evolved to use our lower and upper body differently, mm. right? Like I will double up my sessions of lower body because I think we've evolved to create or be able to withstand a greater threshold of volume and frequency and overall density throughout a week of our lower body because we walk around on our legs, we don't walk around on our hands. That's why like training principles for the upper body might be really effective, but they don't cross pollinate to be effective in the lower body. Give me an example. Sure, uh, bands are, I would much rather you put bands around your elbows and do shoulder warm ups like this with bands around your elbows and put bands around your knees and do the same thing. Like driving out. Yeah, yeah. The idea that like a bands around the hips if we think about how like you know the hip the lateral hip musculature the glute med piriformis and all of that are meant to function versus their action in isolation they're not meant to be strong they're meant to be stable because we walk around on our feet and 60 percent of gait cycle is in what's called stance phase which is a single leg stance where we're having to control the position of the pelvis and the lateral hip from you know a eight give or take eight muscle groups at the or eight muscles at the lateral hip so that's one really strong example of like, look, the upper body and the lower body are different. Where if I said, hey, get a band around your elbows and the only shoulder warm up you did was this, you know, that's gonna elicit infraspinatus function, that's gonna elicit teres minor function, that's going to elicit uh, serratus anterior function, that's gonna allow for, you know, resisted scapular upward rotation, which is more consistent with how we use our upper body and how more consistent with how those muscle groups function rather than isolating the strength of the muscle action at the hip. So it's like, I don't care about moving insertion to origin at my lateral hip. I mean, unless I'm in a, a, some aesthetic sports, a bikini or something like that, and I'm trying to stimulate the glute med or the posterior fibers of the glute med, sure, adding some resistance to that will be helpful. But if I'm just looking for decreasing in knee pain, I'm probably going to take a very different approach at the way I train, you know, what I would oftentimes assume the underlying cause to be, that like the lateral hip than if I had elbow pain. So let's say the elbow and the knee are analogous and that the ball and socket at the hip and the ball and socket at the shoulder are analogous. They're not from a functional perspective because we load this in gait. We don't load this complex in gait. Differentiate for me, for the listener, that the approach you would take to you know, function versus action at the, at the hip. Yeah. So, I mean, I can maybe clearly defining the difference between function versus action as far as I see it. So my brain goes, muscle function is how a muscle behaves when we move from insertion to origin, right? What are the respective joint motions that are created 
when that muscle shortens across one or two or three joints, depending on the complexity of the muscle. Versus muscle function is how does a muscle behave when we walk and breathe, right? So if we can kind of all agree, function is like kind of a shitty word that's been over-perpetuated. It's kind of a marketing buzzy term. Like these TRX suspension bands are functional. They're camouflage, like the Marines. It's like, yeah, I don't want my neighbors seeing me doing TR. Like what the fuck? But function, I think, is worthy of a definition, right? I think it's it, it's worthy as human beings to understand baseline function. That's our safe mode, right? These are positions where if we can understand, you know, what I'll call ventilation, like the the more mechanical process of breathing, um, which is different than respiration, which is more of a, a biochemical process of, of inhalation, exhalation, and we can understand gait cycle, we can understand where our body prefers to be in safe mode. Not to say we live in safe mode, but we should touch home base every now and then. Right, we should see how well we can get and maintain, attain and maintain these positions, access and then or assess and access these positions. So looking at function being, well, how do muscles behave when we walk and breathe? So if we look at the lateral hip is like the most common example. So when I say lateral hip, let's use the glute med as sort of a, uh, an overarching muscle that will encompass the piriformis, that will encompass the, you know, to a certain degree, like some of the obturators, the gamelli, the quadratus femoris, and the deep lateral rotator group of the hip. If we look at action, we move from insertion to origin, we just create, you know, abduction and maybe slight rotation of the hip. Depending on anterior versus posterior fibers, that rotation might be internal, that rotation might be external. But if we think from a functional perspective, well, how does that muscle group behave when we walk? It's like, well, it's the thing in stance phase that makes sure our pelvis stays level so we can have an efficient swing phase on the opposite side. Right? So it's going to create lateral stability or stability at the lateral hip so that, you know, the reference leg, the limb that's on the ground in stance phase can maintain almost like a, like a suspension bridge, right, can maintain that position of the pelvis. And as we swing through, like you you'll, might notice you have, if you look at the heels of your shoes, you might have one heel that's worn down more than the other. You probably on the other side, you have an inability to maintain that that uh, that balanced pelvis position and stance phase because you start heel striking earlier, right? So if we look at function, it's like, well, if we're trying to for maybe fix a knee issue that might be of consequence of a decrease in function of the lateral hip, this function of the lateral hip is to create that stability, to resist force. So then it's like, well, what is stability? It's like stability is, you know, is from an adaptation standpoint, a deviation of center of mass or limitation of base of support or both, right? So how now all of a sudden I have a different subheading under this stimulus. This is a lateral hip stability is a very different subheading of exercises than hamstring strength, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like hamstring strength you could look at, seated, prone, RDL, deadlift, different length tension relationships mm-hmm. where now it's like, well, primary lateral hip stability could be, uh, you know, a single leg RDL, uh, a hip airplane. It could start with a bird dog, like a very short lever, um, you know, short lever, more st- uh, structurally stable lateral hip stability drill. And that's for someone who might be very, very regressed. So for me, it's finding that window of performance or finding that glass ceiling is probably a better word. That glass ceiling of performance where I am able to, while still overcoming with good technique, challenge my lateral stability at my hip. Single leg RDL, contralaterally loaded for me, helps drive a ton of internal rotation at this right hip, which is something that I'm lacking, which is like, if you think about how that works, if my right hip is tight and those lateral rotators are tight, I have a propensity for my hip to fall outward. 
expressing that tension at the lateral rotation. It's trying to pull me into my structure, trying to pull me, my femur into my acetabulum. And in order to maintain this, like we'll call like a centrated joint position, we need to have like a muscular tug of war. We see the same thing in the shoulder where it's like, I have very few muscles that internally rotate my hip effectively. And I have a ton that externally rotate my hip effectively. I have a ton of muscles that internally rotate my shoulder effectively. And I have very few, very small muscles that externally rotate, right? So overcoming that bias to pull into structure, to have the bone rest in the bone from an efficient, you know, what we'll call a structurally stable position. I want to default into function. Now I have some injuries, you know, I have the knee injuries from hockey, I have a, a quad, partial quad tear from powerlifting. My goal is to always out function damage structure. My body wants to default into these sort of, I don't wanna say lazier, but let's say more energy efficient. We're self-preserving self creatures by nature. So I need my default path of least resistance to include the st functional stability at the lateral hip. So if I can, you know, rewire, recircuit my brain to before, whether it's leg press, whether it's squat, whether it's lunge, create a bias towards internal rotation, elicit an effective stimulus of stability at the lateral hip. Then when I'm going through a leg press, I not only have the external stability that the, you know, the giant seat and all that supporting my pelvis and spine and hip give me, I also have a perception of internal stability that'll help me drive further. So the approach in fixing the lateral hip is, Get on one leg and create a perturbation, create some level of deviation of center of mass or further limitation of basis support. So for me, it's using external load to create a deviation of a combined center of mass of me and a dumbbell that starts to move outside of the center of mass. Now, all of a sudden, this, this, this drawbridge, this, this muscular support that's trying to keep my pelvis aligned is tested. And like, it's to a certain degree, it's worth understanding the difference in muscle contraction because this is where stability gets lost on a lot of people. And it's like, it's a little bit into the weeds, but it's, I don't know if you want to go down that yeah, route. Do it. Okay, so we have, part of our nervous system is called the spinocerebellar tract. Now, mapping the nervous system is endlessly complex. Like there's a part of your brain that helps you localize sound with your eyes. So if you hear something, there's one part of your brain that goes, it's only job is when you hear a sound, it's like, find it, find where the sound came from. So it's like, there's everything we do has a little compartment and filing cabinet and a whole administrative system in your brain to take care of, and you have no control over it. So brain mapping is, is infinitely more complex than mapping the, the muscular system, right? Insertion, origin, innervation, artery, all that pretty basic when we start to stack it up into the, next to the complexity of the nervous system. When we go through a voluntary muscle contraction, which is 99% of our resistance training, for some bodybuilders, might even be 100% of our resistance training. That contraction is a byproduct of your pre and primary motor cortex. So we kind of have like our frontal and our parietal lobe here. They sort of work in tandem to create these, these, these motor patterns. Now, motor patterns for bicep curl and leg press, pretty simple. Let's compare it to like a jump shot not a basketball player, right. right? But, you know, it's in there somewhere. In the far back filing cabinet, dusty behind some cobwebs, there's something that goes, eh, am I doing it? Good form. I think I, it's all in the wrists. Oh, right. It's the chubs, right? I think Chubbs said that. It's all in the wrist. So my brain, if you're given a basketball, goes, all right, I, it's it. Hold on. Give me a second. I got to go back into records here and find mm -hmm. it. They go back into the archives. They... And like, all right, unpack this motor pattern. It's like, okay, so as this deploys, let's say, 
you know, outward through our spinal nerves and goes to all the muscles that need to simultaneously co-contract for this to happen. So we're going to elbow extension, wrist flexion, shoulder flexion, not to mention what's happening to co-contract and, you know, maybe some plantar flexion, some hip extension, all this goes happens one. So think of this motor pattern getting deployed from, you know, this sort of central processor, pre and primary motor cortex through like the parietal and frontal lobe versus this. It's like, well, this is not a, even if this is a dusty program, you can figure this out, right? Elbow flexion. It's a single joint movement, supination of the wrist, let's call it two if the shoulder position is fixed. So that's a, that's a voluntary muscle contraction. Same if I'm, let's say I'm training the glute med from a strengthening perspective. If I put bands around my knees and start doing this, that's a voluntary muscle contraction, right? That goes to what? Glute med, superior gluteal nerve, then the whole depolarization, sarcoplasmic reticulum, all that shit. So this idea of the difference between strength and stability is often misunderstood because we misunderstand or we don't understand the neurological pathways that differ voluntary versus involuntary muscle contraction. So our muscles have sensory inputs that feed to the brain. Our skin has sensory inputs that feed to the brain. Like if you think about, and this is one of the issues you're running into with artificial intelligence is they don't, it's so hard to understand how we perceive things, right? Like me doing this is like, well, what am I feeling? It's like, I'm feeling a bit of skin stretch. Well, that skin stretch is relayed by a nerve ending. I'm feeling a little bit of deep pressure. Well, that deep pressure is, 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 is relayed by a nerve ending, right? Over time, I might feel some heat. That heat is relayed, all separate nerve endings, right? Mm -hmm. And they all feed into what's called the spinocerebellar tract. Spinocerebellar tract is part of three pathways that feed into our cerebellum. Our cerebellum is our movement brain, right? So different parts of our brain are more or less responsible for different things. Like the occipital lobe is very, uh, is very or highly involved in vision. Now vision is cool because it finds itself in numerous spots in the brain. You know, our frontal cortex is, um, or a frontal lobe rather is very much driven um, with cognition and thinking. If you ever see like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, like a frontal lobotomy is something mm -hmm. they used to do to crazy people, mm -hmm. crazy people. So each sort of, you know, we have parietal, we have temporal, we have occipital, then we have our brainstem. And then behind the brainstem, we have this little like, walnut shaped thing called our cerebellum. So it's our, like I would call it our movement brain. So we have our inputs from our spinal cerebellar tract. We have inputs from what's called our cerebrocerebellar tract. And we have inputs from what's called our, um, our vestibulocerebellar tract. So when we look at spinal cerebellar inputs, one of the things that makes spinal cerebellar inputs different is we have a bunch of different ones. So I just mentioned a few. Skin stretch being one. Uh, deep pressure, light touch, vibration is another one. All of these kick up into the brain at various speeds. Pain is another one that kicks up into the brain. Now, when we look at, there's two that travel the fastest to the brain, and those two are Golgi tendon organ and muscle spindle. So Golgi tendon organ, some of you might know as like the stretch reflex, but muscle spindle, a muscle spindle is a really interesting one because it causes an involuntary contraction at a muscle based off of various change in length and duration of that change of length. So a muscle spindle, think of it like a finger trap, right? If I have my fingers in a finger trap and they're just resting there, I don't notice that I can't move my fingers. It's not until I go like this that it stops me from moving my fingers. So muscle fibers can be broken down into intrafusal and extrafusal muscle fibers. And on the intrafusal muscle fibers, we have these what are called muscle spindles. Now muscle spindles are like a finger trap 
around the intrafusal muscle fibers. So as we start to approach an end range of motion of a muscle, think of these fingers starting to be pulled apart. Now it's very sensitive to any alleviation or further stretch of that muscle. This is why stability is often tested at end ranges of motion of a muscle, right? You know, my shoulder stability is very easily tested here. Why? Because we're, we're very sensitive in the internal environment of our intrafusal muscle fibers because that muscle spindle is so taut around that muscle fiber as it lengthens. So if we see a, a rapid change in length, we're gonna get feedback very quickly. So what happens, like let's take an exercise like a kettlebell bottom under press, right? So let's compare an external rotator cuff strengthening drill like this with a cable or a band or how, whatever you prefer, or like this, and let's compare it to the pathway that goes on between holding a kettlebell like this. So. If we're doing an external rotation at 90 degrees and we're in the neutral scapular plane and all things are equal and we have a good resistance profile and all that, this starts here, right? This contraction is starting centrally and working out through whatever spinal nerve that is and going thoracodorsal, Ooh, that's a reach. Axillary, axillary nerve, I think. Someone's gonna fact check me on that, sue me. But it's starting here and it's going out into the infraspinatus, maybe a little bit of teres minor, and we're going through this relative joint action, right? Action, insertion to origin. Whereas if I'm holding a kettlebell here, think of what's happening. It's like we have this relationship of intrafusal muscle fiber and muscle spindle, this very fast, the fastest of our spinal cerebellar inputs into our movement brain. So this input and when we feel a change in relative relationship in this very sensitive environment with the intrafusal muscle fiber being fully engulfed with one of these muscle spindles, that reflex goes right into the level of the spinal cord. And then with that information, our body decides whether to relax or further contract that muscle. That's why you might see people doing this or standing on one leg, you might see their foot doing this. That's a, that's a brain, that's the brain and the shoulder having a conversation, right? But it's the conversation is starting with the shoulder and ending with the brain. And the contraction is actually what we'll call retrograde. So the contraction starts at the level of the muscle, not at the level of the central nervous system. So that's fundamentally the difference between strength versus stability. Stability is, or strength is voluntary. It's strength is muscle action. Strength is, strength is a pathway that we carve out over time where stability is more reflexive in nature and it actually goes retrograde from the muscle back into the nervous system, peripheral to central, rather than starting central and moving peripheral. That's a key misunderstanding when people go like, muscle contractions and muscle contraction, muscles are dumb. It's like, no, muscles are actually very sophisticated. They're our conduit into the nervous system, right? They're our ability to start to access different parts of the nervous system. So when we understand the spinal cerebellar shock, it's a much longer conversation about how that interacts with the other two feedbacks into the cerebellum, which create this movement brain. We can start to understand how to predict where to start to allocate some of our resources and time when it comes to training. This is very much like when we start to go down rehabilitation tracks like post-stroke victims or, or maybe even post-surgery or trying to optimize sports performance. That's where this conversation becomes very um, impactful, but it still has a place in conventional sort of bodybuilding training. I want you to differentiate between how you um, choose training for yourself, for another client, between the balance of, of um, uh, you know, ultimately training function versus training action. So if, if I'm, if you're, in your case right now, as you're shifting into bodybuilding, there needs to be a degree of, of origin to insertion, right? Or insertion to origin. Yeah. And um, also function. Right. So as an athlete, you're training a lot of function, right? As a bodybuilder, there's maybe a, a prioritization to training muscle action. Mm -hmm. So... 
What's your approach or your theory on the integration of these two? Right. So minimum effective dose is always the goal. The best way to drive these adaptations, especially in bodybuilding, is through understanding primary, but more importantly, secondary and tertiary adaptations that can happen in an exercise. Right. So I think starting with shoulder, let's go shoulder, hip and spine. There's systems checks that we can run. Right. So we can break. You know, we can break the hip up, we can break the shoulder up, we can break the spine up in different systems checks. Think of like an airplane. So in the same way an airplane sort of has like, you know, A, B, C, D, I don't know how familiar people are with planes, but they have different checks that they do. And a basic system check they might run where like an inbound flight, you know, let's say an inbound flight from Windsor lands and it's about to go back to Windsor from Toronto, right? It's just sort of on the milk run. They're going to look at instrumentation, GPS, weather, weight balance, things like that, right? Basic, you know, every, you know, 400 hours of flying, they might go into a hangar for 10 hours and do a more in-depth check. But I think it's worthwhile to do systems checks at shoulder, hip, and spine. And then that can help us dictate our exercise selection. If we can understand primary, obviously, I think that's inherent to most exercises, but secondary and tertiary adaptations that can occur, right? So if we look at the shoulder and we look at, you know, maybe T-spine range of motion, call it compression expansion, call it flexion extension, call it what have you, variability in movement at the thoracic spine, right? Can you get into a thoracic extended position? Can you get into a thoracic flex position? Something simple like a cat, cow, or whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it. It can be a, a really good insight in isolation of that system of thoracic variability of movement. From there, moving out to the scapula, can we find full excursion of upward and downward rotation, right? Which, you know, we'll call it up, call it protraction, call it retraction, call it upward and downward rotation. So figuring out exercises that in the most isolated way possible, check that system of upward and downward rotation. So I have to, I have to interject. So just the, the idea of like scaling stability comes to mind, right? Right. So if I can do, if I can, if I can access upward and downward rotation without resistance, right. And then I'd start adding resistance and complexity on that. That's a different skill ultimately, right? So how do you, so like, right? So if I'm trying to get into upward rotation in, in a loaded or downward rotation right. in a loaded way, right. that's a very different um, requirement. Right, And but they're prerequisites for one another. And this is where, sure. on, and this is where the system checks model, let's call it, um, is essentially the Rosetta Stone between corrective exercise and exercising correctly, right? The amount of prep work when I'm on my shit is minimal because I've been able to jump the line or bridge the gap between, you know, priming corrective work prior to training with actual exercises that fill in, you know, a a, a requisite amount of my training itself and are starting to touch these points of T-spine variability, of Mm. scapular excursion, of internal rotation inhibition and external rotation strength and stability, right? So like, let's take those and, and build those out. If I show a deficiency in maybe thoracic spine rotation, right? If I'm dealing with an athlete, a professional golfer who might have an extreme bias right to left, or let's take it to more applicable standard. I grew up in Windsor, Ontario. The majority of my friends put four screws into the door of your Chrysler town and country. So they go from this tray and they pick up something large and they put it over here and they drill the door on or whatever, and then they rotate back unloaded. So the amount of loaded left to right rotations that they do on their 12 hour shifts, you know, let's say 300 days a year for the better part of 20 plus years before they get their pension is insane. Mm -hmm. So it's like, 
you know, in part of these system checks, we might see a huge discrepancy in the range of motion or variability left to right and rotation. So, but if we're looking to prepare that person for exercise, creating symmetrical, at the very least, the perception of the ability to rotate through the thoracic spine is not only going to indicate the drill that we do in the time for preparation, but it should also jump the aisle into the actual exercise we choose for the session itself, whether that's that day or whether that's through the continuum of the week. So something that's going to elicit or test T-spine rotation. So if given the option for someone who biases a, uh, an asymmetrical presentation of rotation through the trunk, through that system, we know this and maybe we do like a thread the needle drill. Very basic ones and zeros, trying to create that base level code for that movement to occur symmetrically. But if the first exercise we do is a chest supported row, it's as if we forgot that the big thing we were trying to bias was rotation of the T-spine. But that should tell us now and inform us of our exercise selection and going, well, you know, we did this thread the needle drill. Well, what are we preparing for? It's like, let's double down on those new potential end ranges that we found, albeit transiently, and let's create strength with maybe a single arm dumbbell row, which will elicit a ton of rotation through that trunk, right? So that's where I think these systems checks become infinitely more expedient in their ability to jump the aisle and ultimately minimize the amount of prep work you need to do is if they're helping us inform a better exercise execution or selection and execution for the workout itself, right? So over time, we can start to peel back these systems checks because these systems, like if you want to test your upward rotation, do a pull up. So if you can't do a pull up because your elbows hurt or your your wrists or your bicep or your shoulder, it's like, well, let's go back and look at all that goes into creating upward rotation, right? Let's look at the T-spine mechanics. Let's look at the demand at the internal and external rotation at the shoulder. Let's balance each one of those systems individually and let's progress through exercise selection, getting into this overhead position, which will elicit the greatest amount of upward rotation. So it's like using these systems checks to create an informed decision on our exercise selection while still being in the arena of isolation, right? Like a pull-up isn't the most effective exercise for training your lats, right? We could organize the resistance profile and the strength curve based off of the fiber bias of, you know, thoracic or lumbar or iliac or more horizontal or more oblique or more vertical. But if our rate limiter of those exercises is going to be you know, a, a decrease in shoulder function leading to a lack of per, uh, performance or a, a, an increase in pain, then we need to be able to dose in these exercises. Minimum effective dose of integrated shoulder function that also has a secondary benefit. It's like I've never seen anyone do a ton of pull-ups and have a small back. Not necessarily going to be the best way to isolate the lats, but back training as a whole from, you know, the teres into the lat and the rhomboids pulling that downward rotation to complete the movement across like the mid to upper back. All of that is useful. It's not quantifiable as much as like, you know, adding a quarter per side on a row that's much more strict in the way we execute to a particular bias of, uh, of fiber type in the lats, let's say. But understanding how to dose exercises that integrate function while meeting us halfway in isolating action, right? So this is where the systems checks inform us of how it is we should warm up during movement or for movement. And then also might give us an, an idea of how much volume or time we need to dedicate to drills that might have a secondary or tertiary benefit to improving muscle function. And in places where the systems check out, then maybe we can open up our exercise selection to be more driven to categories that are going to be more favorable to driving hypertrophy to certain muscle groups. One of the things that I love that you're doing right now is at least 
to the small amount of discussion we've had about it, you've you've chosen exercises that are fit your fitting your goal right now, and you're staying with them until they stop adapting. Talk to me about that. Yeah. So, you know, bodybuilding shouldn't be a novel approach. It should be a specific approach, right? So, you know, in most bodybuilding gyms, there's an array of equipment. Now, each equipment's going to have a slightly different nuance mechanic it's going to for your size and shape maybe bias a particular part of the excursion of the particular joint that you're training through and thus you know the muscle is going to get a different stimulus but i don't want that stimulus to come week over week from changing machines arbitrarily i want it to become very specifically i want to control my environment right because if you can control the external it's as close as we can get to driving and controlling what's being driven on the internal so I think that's a you thing. That's a you quote for sure. That internal external environment. That's a Pakulski special. So the idea is, you know, if we have 17 leg presses here, I'm going to stay on one. And the leg press for me right now is my indicator. My yardstick of progress is going to be overall output. Can I start to push 10 to 12 reps at heavier weights? And can I just cycle through and keep, hey, am I getting 12s? All right, throw a quarter on a side next week. Until that performance begins to blunt, I'm going to stick with that leg press. So within that is it like okay i'm staying on the same leg press but i'm varying rep ranges or are you just like hey we're always eight to ten and my objective is to get stronger at this right yes with that particular exercise because the leg press wins at this particular threshold i think right because if i wanted to go fours to sixes i'll, I'll, I'll bet you it doesn't <laughs> well you think the rep you think it wins at 50. i just think no but then where do you draw the line somewhere well, between 12 and 50 clearly yeah so I've got my best. Well, so it, it's always variable, man. But I, I would say like with, with lower body, as I was saying to Calvin today, I think the greatest lever that nobody's pulling is like manipulating density and, and maybe adding more reps. So like, man, when I, my legs grew the most was like I could do sets of 20 with 30 seconds rest and, and everyone everyone was sucking gas in the floor and I'd be doing two sets to every one. Right. And my legs just exploded. And that's not saying just me, but that's a lot of other people as well. And I think there's there's a lever there. And again, it's not the only lever because eventually that goes away too. So I'd say there's two things to that. One, when one of the earliest videos I remember was you doing the Wingate test because I used to be, I mean, still am heavily into like strength and conditioning and sports science. And I was like, what is this meatball doing? How is he going to, you look like a bear on, on a circus bicycle. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's what you look like. Drop a little steel plates down. I was going to give you like a little yarmulke or one of those, one of those little, uh, what are they called? The, the, the Shriner hats. And I was like, what? but you got my attention. I was like, oh, cool, sports science. I fuck with this. So I would say the plate has been spun elsewhere with an exercise that is better suited to push that adaptation further. So for me to lay down a framework for 20 reps of me to be effective, I would have to f use a tool that allows me to improve my aerobic capacity. No, because I was doing sets of 20 before I ever did a Wingate bike. Okay. Now, do you think your sets of 20 would have been better if you went Wingate bike first, laid down the lungs to lay down the legs, rather yeah. than building the lungs with the legs? Maybe. So, I don't know if that was a lung thing, though. I think it was, an, it was an, a lactate, like hydrogen and um, energy production thing. Yeah. Like, when you simply build... I, so, there, there's something magic that happens when you pass that 20 rep range, man. It's just like the level of, of discomfort and, um, like... 
the level of discomfort and um, tension that just mm. starts to accumulate in like, we'll have to do it sometime. You know, I've never really done a really yeah. crazy, like we've done some heavy stuff but never some high rep stuff. I would out of my own brain, this is where my brain goes, is if I'm to look at, this is fun, I like this, is I would look at that and be like, how can I augment that recovery of that system? Short to say, if I were to train like that, I would make my drugs more metabolic in nature. I would be doing insulin and growth hormone and driving a ton of intra-workout carbs or intra-workout supplementation period because I look at that going, okay, that's a metabolic stimulus that requires a metabolic recovery. Sure, of course. So like that's where my brain would go. It's like if I were to prepare for that, it's like if I'm to look at that and be like, hey, let's, let's drive a lot of output in a more compound, albeit externally stabilized environment, I would probably take six weeks building my aerobic capacity because yeah. I don't want to stifle the ability to really push those legs. Well, I wouldn't do a I wouldn't do a squat for sets of twenty because right. that that to me is incredibly aerobic. Sure, leg press or high squat, just do the the sheer number yeah. of like so half Ryan the muscles Crowley, involved. So. Yeah, right. She's R.I.P. The half number of, of muscles involved is not nearly as aerobic. Yeah, I mean, it's just taking the, the the muscle to the point of just like screaming, and then you start going, okay, maybe I'll start with three minute rest periods for two weeks, and then I'll do two minute rest periods for two weeks, and then I'll do one minute rest periods for two weeks, and then all of a sudden you've just trained the aerobic capacity kind of indirectly, yeah. but you're also building the muscles capacity. Yeah, I, I've just seen um, for me, I've, maybe it's the the you know as you progress up in weight. This could be the thing too. Like as you progress up in weight, there's a certain point where you're you're too strong. Sure. Yeah. It's like I'm I'm taxing my body. Like you get it, squatting right. 700 pounds. Like there was a point where I was doing 600 for sets of 20, and like Hilarious. that's just too much. Right. And so you're like, okay, what can I do here to increase the work without having to put 600 pounds on my back? And that's still so consistent with the systems approach that we're talking about. Because totally. your systems you're prioritizing is your you know, your skeletal system, your like, let's call it musculoskeletal system, like your connective tissue, like the inherent creep that happens on your lower back, you know, ligaments, your SI joint ligaments, your hip labrum, your knee meniscus, your intervertebral disc, like that's going to essentially be your bottleneck at that strength is loading and more importantly, recovering from those, which is a much longer recovery uh, orbit than a, a normal muscle adaptation. And with your execution though, I'd like to see what happens to your physique. We should run a little test with like, Great execution, and then starting to add the accumulation of, you know, ultimately, it's it's more volume, but it's also just like more, um, more density, like improving the improving the muscles' ability to contract over time. So, do you? I mean, thought exercise. You think, and I, I'm I'm confident I know the answer. Is you think that driving the volume in a leg press over twenty would yield? more considerable results than driving leg extension hamstring curl or you know some sort of glute isolation over 20 because that's where my mind goes it's like where am i going to minimize the amount of co-contraction to drive the greatest amount of output to warrant that kind of stimulus meta like i look at that as like a metabolic stimulus in pure isolation it's like well my knee extension is going to be assisted by you know the stability of my hamstring and that right. energy expenditure on that eccentric load plus the amount of hip extension that has to come from my glute mm -hmm. regardless of the setup for the most part the adductor contribution is like well if the goal is big quads if i'm going to do 20s i'll do 20s on a leg extension where it's like it's going to be relatively higher the amount of isolated load on the quad decrease in overall load at the knee, because you know most leg extensions go to 250, or unless you're loading a plate-loaded one, 
and I can isolate that at a, at a lesser collateral at my knee joint. Theoretically, that's how I look at it. Why lesser collateral? I would say because of the stability of the foot, I just like you're going to have more um, stability at the knee joint, right? Yeah. So I, and I, I mean, it's worth an, ex worth an exploration. So maybe just looking mechanistically at what you're trying to accomplish as a bodybuilder, right? So we want to have the accumulation of, of dense proteins. We want to, we want the, um, the sarcoplasm or the myofibril uh, hypertrophy. We also want a degree of sarcoplasmic, right? So like, I think the idea of maybe the twenties was something that allowed me to actually just accumulate the capacity to store more glycogen. And and so when, when I've noticed people doing that, it's just a different, again, you, I, I really believe that there needs to be a consideration around both. Like, do I want to have the myofibrillar um, density? Of course, I want it to be look, look hard and grainy, but there's value in, in like training the energy systems, training the body's ability to store and replenish glycogen there in, in greater capacity in, in as much of its, its ability to change the aesthetic of the muscle. Yeah. Right, so obviously you're very strong. Your tendons are very strong. Um, to accumulate the round bodybuilding look, I mean, I, I would just explore what that would look like for you. So I, I again, you're, I mean, on a different degree, but yeah, I mean, I have like almost predetermined rep ranges, or like let's say rules that dictate the stimulus that I progress and basic or based off of an exercise execution and the relative uh, relationship of you know, joint stability. Like, let's. That's a lot to take in. It's a lot for me even to think of as I'm walking through it. Let's look at a bicep curl, right? High cable, low incline, preacher. The rules for me, primarily as far as progression goes, is I'm going to keep the preacher curl relatively heavy, right? Because this is where this exercise wins. When, when does that break? Like, at what point is have you capped out? Like it's like a leg press or a bicep curl. Mm. At some point, there's only so much load you can do that. Like the strength is not linear. Right. What do you do? Then you just seek alternate positions of challenge. Right. So like for me, the rule for a preacher curl, and also you can look at positions of challenge, not only being of the joint, but also the position of that exercise in, in, the, the, in the training. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So like a, a rule for me is I'm always going to progress repetitions and time spent in this position because I want to start to tap into the benefit of this high cable bicep curl. Right. I want to tap into you know maintaining that external rotation, that upward rotation of the scap. So it's like this for a heavy six is, is stupid to me. It's like this idea of like what where does this exercise win, hmm. right? Well, this wins in inoculating the shoulder position, this flexion, abduction, external rotation that we're looking for, the scapular upward rotation. So it's like if I challenge sixes, well, my biceps potential potentially could be greater than the ability to resist force in that unstable position. So it's like if I can keep the load lower, keep the time higher, I can start to better make these these under the surface adaptations, these secondary tertiary adaptations. Right. May I say this? It sounds like your your um, desired first adaptation in hypertrophy is the accumulation of strength. Is that true? That's a plate that I already have spinning. Hmm. So I think it's a different relationship. And what it's if you didn't? Oh, it would be priority number one motor unit recruitment by pushing the co-contraction of the CNS would be number one priority, getting very efficient at compound movements because that just sets an umbrella, a capability, a capacity. How much do you care about, if, I, if I'm not in the room, how much do you care about execution? Oh, it's the only thing I focus on because I've been, and that's what powerlifting teaches you above all else, is that you know it's, it's splitting the atom because it's like I've misgrooved two reps in my powerlifting, let's call it career, and I have a pectarin and torn quad to show mm -hmm. for it. 
right? Got too forward into my wraps on a triple at 661 and I misgrooved high uh, a double at 200 kilos. And I have a torn quad and torn pack to, to show for it. So execution for me is like painting the awareness throughout that entire movement is number one. But it's easier, I think it's easier for me because, and this is such a bodybuilding ism, the idea of a mind-muscle connection. It's like most people that just starts with a subjective feedback rather than an objective goal. It's like, I know mind-muscle connection because I know in here what the muscles are supposed to do rather than being told by the muscle what it did, right? So I have a very like proactive approach to execution because it's like I could lay out the mechanics and biomechanics of most exercise or almost all exercise that I do. If I can, I probably won't do it. So execution to me is paramount because it's what, I mean, if it has such a negative, it's like drugs. Do you know what the really good drugs are? The ones with the real bad side effects, right? If like, if I go see a homeopathic doctor and I get sawgrass or whatever and <laughs> rosemary and whatever the fuck a hemp part is, it's like, oh, so this is, how much do I take? Yeah, just all of it. All of it. Right. It's like, all right, so maybe shit my brains out. That's it. And that's going to be the effect. But if I like, someone comes to me with a rap sheet, like if I'm on my deathbed and someone goes looking to take this, blurred vision, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, <laughs> and maybe death, I'm like, yo, but if this guy hits it right down the center of the plate, I'm going to be Gucci <laughs> in like 20 minutes. So it's, it's the same idea with execution. It's like if something's going to bear with it and has in the past such a negative side effect, such as like, oh, fuck, I'm in a wrong position here, <sighs> tear, it's like, well, I bet you that relationship works to the positive. If I do it properly, it's going to have this, you know, use the use the uh, atom approach. It's like you split the atom one way, you light up the world. You split it the wrong way, three mile island. Right? So I fucking Chernobyled my quad and my pack. <laughs> so it's like, eh, maybe if I paid attention to it. And I think that's what saved me in the last like three or four years and just my ability to maintain any sort of size. Well, my diet on the road for three years was like equivalent of that of a kid at a gas station with his parents' credit card. <laughs> like, I guess I'm gonna have a ready to drink protein <laughs> shake and some beef jerky. So what comes to mind for me, Jordan, is, um, you know, at some point strength caps out. Like at some point you're like, okay, either you're really big and you're really strong and do it getting stronger becomes a powerlifting endeavor and then you end up breaking down the skeletal system or you break down the muscles, as you kind of just alluded to. And I'm curious then, you know, you said your your path of, of progression is like changing the angles or changing the exercise a little bit. But I'm curious to explore other thoughts there and, and you know, both for your benefit and for the audience's benefit and, and for my benefit. Like I'd like to just kind of go back and forth on the uh, the opportunities that exist at that point, right? So as I was saying to Calvin today, um, you know, he's doing whatever it was, nine plates or something, a side on a leg press, two bands, heavy, and he wants to be a bodybuilder. So my, my advice to him was, well, instead of putting more weight on here, start challenging the density. Right. And I feel like so few people pull that card, right? And um, it seems to be, again, whether it's just because it's novel or um, you know, it's like something people don't do, but it seems to be one of the most useful levers. So when I talk about progression, I've, you've heard me say it, I talk about time, distance, and load. And first we challenge time, I, I believe, and then distance, and then load. And, and distance is, is um, yeah, subjective because sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. But um, yeah, I'm curious how you how you frame it in your mind if, if you were to create like a framework for progression models right. and maybe poking holes in mine. So I think 
exercise selection is in my mind the most efficient means of progression because exercise selection will facilitate movements that either in the primary secondary or tertiary or all three will have a benefit from the progression of time distance and loads let's go back to the mcgill big three model real quick i've seen people add weight to a bird dog mm -hmm. that's adding load just, yep. Stupid. Mm -hmm. You want to add, you want to unload to a bird dog, go on one leg, create a longer lever. You're essentially doing that, but you're driving more closely to the stimulus of instability rather than the stimulus of strength. The second you add that resistance, you're resisted shoulder flexion. Sure, there might be a net wash or a net increase in instability as you deviate the combined center of mass of you and the dumbbell. But I would say the best progression there is is actually moving away. So t a bird dog for time, sure. I, I like that exercise from like, a, let's call it endurance from a classical sense of the word. Um, so the bird dog is a progression of time, sure, but that tops out. You're gonna hold a bird dog for 30 minutes, but it's like distance. You know, again, that's sort of like, sure. that's, a, that's a floating sort of nebulous continuum. Well, you just it's cha change the, the lever, right? Right, Same idea. so, and load. So rather than, you know, let's say, if, for the bird dog rather than loading it, I would uh -huh. pick a new exercise, new exercise yeah. right? So I kind of look at that, you know, we t maybe let's bring it back to the leg press 20 rep example where my default might be like, you know, l let's maybe practice the skill and co-contraction involved with squatting if we've graduated the leg press. Let's move to a medium that can facilitate that. And if we want to minimize stress at the knee, it's like, well, we're body or we're trying to be bodybuilders. You're a bodybuilder. I'm, a, I'm just a, I'm a friend of a bodybuilder, <laughs> but it's like this is the closest I've ever get to bodybuilding is <laughs> sitting next to you. But it's to me, it's just all right. Well, I would rather go 20 reps on a leg extension, 20 reps on a hamstring curl, and then push because right now I can't tap out a leg press. And then you know, to what degree pin extenders become a, a thing I use. So for me, you know, the idea of time distance load as a those are three things at the top where I index exercise selection, what exercise is going to win in a progression of time. Distance. Let's go back to that. I want to, I want to pull that out a little bit more. So you're saying you'd rather do twenties on leg curls and leg extensions and not leg presses or hack squats. Right. And so, you know, talking your language, we both talk the same language when it comes to stability at the hip being the rate limiting factor in your ability to produce force at the quad right. and, and hamstring ultimately. Yeah. Maybe that's where I, where my brain just went on um, the benefit of, of leg presses and hack squats is, I know you kind of said the opposite. So like you don't want to involve the adductor, the the glute, um, because of the metabolic uh, effect. Whereas like my thought goes to if I want to build better legs, I need to improve my stability, mobility at the hip. Right. Um, so that would be why I like to do well, one of the one of the potentially many reasons why I like to do leg press at higher reps is it seems to have a greater transfer metabolically and from a stability perspective to improving my ability to do hot, more high-end horsepower work. Right. Right. So again, yeah, if that, if that, that, that just came to mind, as you said that, like so, that would be the reason why I don't want to do, um, leg extensions and, and, and leg curls only because here's, here's a good example, actually, our good friend, um, Ryan Crowley. Yep. Um, so if you put him on a hack squat, he can do 10 plates a side. If you put him in a squat, he has a hard time doing a plate aside. Right. So where does my brain go with that, right? It's like, well, terrible spinal stability, right? right? So he's so tight because he lacks that much stability. Right. He has terrible hip mobility. So even though he's doing the hack squat, he's artificially using the back pad and he's like allowing his back to roll huge amounts. So he doesn't have 
the hip stability, hip mobility at all to be able to access internal stability, to be able to access the range of motion and control the range of motion. So by taking him through uh, a, a leg press or even a leg extension, he could do the entire stack with a single leg. He's extraordinarily strong, but he's not getting the benefit of, of building stability at the hip, building stability at the spine. So yes, I would incorporate squatting, lunging, things that required stability at the trunk and spine. And then also maybe higher, higher rep things that challenged his ability to increase the range and increase stability at the hip and pelvis, um, rather than just isolating leg extension and leg curls. So th that's where that starts to like split hairs a little bit. Yeah, well, because to me, you originally asked like, a really good question. It was, how do you know which taxonomies to file your indexes under, yeah. essentially, right? So, and I was like, well, pain and performance. So the discrepancy in performance where, you know, I, well, let's go stick with Ryan. Ryan clearly shows a discrepancy between his internal and external stability or his reliance on external versus internal stability. So I would take that and go, okay, well, let's peel down now to what is trunk stability, what is spinal and pelvic stability in its truest essence. And then some indexes that I would look at for in Ryan's case would like, all right, let's push him to a big three model. Where does he start to break an anti-lateral flexion, anti-flexion extension, and anti-rotation? And then let's put him through a continuum of all these exercises of like bird dog side plank curl up, maybe dead bug over bird dog. Does he have a capacity to even maintain these simple ones and zeros? Like I use like the analogy of um, of a computer. We think of like a, a a small operating system or an old computer with you know very few bits, right? Like a like a four bit operating system. Mm -hmm. So not many ones and zeros. So I mean we're sitting in fucking mission control right now. Like Lundy's at the helm of. Uh, there's literally a server under our desk. Like there's a lot of opera, there's a lot of computing power here. So our ability to run more complex programs is directly correlated to the number of bits in our operating system or number of ones and zeros. So if we have someone like Ryan, I would still look at something like a leg press, like a, a decent amount of ones and zeros required. It's not the most complex system in the world, but it's definitely more comprehensive, more complicated than a leg extension or a hamstring curl. Does he have the ones and zeros or how much of that environment is propped up on the external stability, which we talked about the back pad and all that, but also the internal structural stability? How much is he requiring the intervertebral disc to pick up the load that his spinal extensors and his rotatories and his transversal spinalis? And, uh, you know, how much is his SI joint ligament taking the wheel for the lack of the glute meds function to laterally stabilize the hip? How much is, you know, the pelvis taking the role of uh, the diminished input from the adductor group as a secondary pelvic stabilizer? And I would say, well, a good indicator of that is what is his ability to resist force across these three planes of movement? What are his ones and zeros? I can't, there's no way, my first computer ran on Windows 95. And then there was like Windows XP came out or something like that. I could maybe download an illegal Metallica song off LimeWire. And then if I tried to send an email, my computer just went some blue screen of death. It didn't have the ones and zeros. And now with the ones and zeros, a large bit operating system, we can run this podcast, we can run Zoom, we can run Skype, we can run Gmail, all anything you want on this computer because it has a lot of computing power. So my brain goes, well, what is the economical return. And I see the leg press for you is like, well, let's pre-exhaust all of his strengths and let's leave him left with what little stability internally he has left. And let's tax that in a relatively safe environment. 
So that's kind of like I, if I'm decoding your thought process correctly or understanding your thought process correctly. Well, I just want to teach his body to so obviously he's very good at, at horsepower quad extension yeah but i like the idea of if i'm trying to get him to, to the point where he can squat i like the idea of like okay well i know you can do this thing extend your knee but now i need you to be able to do this and this together like you're saying it's adding more ones and zeros mm -hmm. so it's like now i need you to be able to extend your knee and extend your hip at the same time right. and not even yet involving your spine right let's keep your spine out for now and then eventually maybe we'll incorporate a little bit of, of spinal loading maybe it's a counterbalance squat right progressing him towards something where it's like slowly allowing a spot to, to stabilize so again not that that's the best example but i just i, I see value in um these high rep leg presses over and above high rep leg extensions um just from i think the co-contraction ability but I, i'm just trying to understand your, your perspective on why that's a negative to you right right i just think if the idea is to start to coordinate these multi-joint movements mm -hmm. to take away, you know, the single joint action of you know, quad extension, knee flexion for hamstring curl, all that, and start to piece it together in a way that starts to um, lay down maybe a, a trail of breadcrumbs for his nervous system to follow, to be able to associate, you know, these individual muscle actions with a more integrated function, go from leg extension, hamstring curl, to ultimately a barbell back squat. If we think the rate limiter to his range of motion, to ultimately putting a bar on his back, is the stability at the trunk, stability at the hip, et cetera, I think I would rather break out to a model that trains those in isolation without the input of, you know, stronger systems taking the wheel for the first 80, 90% of the set. So this would be unilateral movements, right? Like, mm -hmm. let's go through a continuum. Let's do a systems check of his full excursion of his hip. Stationary lunge. Does he bias an internal rotation of the extended hip? You know, does he overarch an extension to keep his center of mass backwards, the sternum ahead of his sacrum? Right? Does he, can he sh shift his posterior? Can he shift his center of mass posteriorly? Probably not. Very compressed between uh, between the shoulder blades. Very forward carrying anterior center of mass. He's you know he's a big guy. Can we go stationary lunge into walking lunge? Can we go into single leg RDL? Can we go into um, you know, something like a hip airplane? Well, how much control does he have of the excursion of that hip? And subsequently, how much demand does that put into upstream into the control in the pelvis and lumbar spine? So if the goal is like, hey, let's drive a leg press to a point where the strengths are fatigued and what we're left with is the internal stability at the, like at the, at the hip or at the, at the spine, absolutely. I think that's a really good way to train greater range of motion, like outside of his active range. His active range is dog shit. Like if you had him go through like what's called a sprinter pose, which is like a lunge where you bring into active hip flexion. If you had him do that, the lack of stability around his trunk, his lumbar spine, his lumbopelvic region would minimize greatly his ability to actively drive his knee upward. Mm -hmm. And even so, you'll see with him, and I haven't done this, but I can almost guarantee he probably has such a diminished capacity for active dorsiflexion that it's like he's gonna come in with like a foot that just looks like this. Mm -hmm. If you have him drive this knee up, the knee's gonna go nowhere near anything that resembles full depth. So I like using the leg press as a means of loading outside the active range. Because if I get him into this sprinter pose position where with standing on one leg, with a, you know, a knee that's fully extended, a glute knee that's co-contracted, a femur that's very stable, tries to actively bring this up, I know his active range is gonna be trash. But, his active range is trash because he doesn't have the internal stability. If we augment his lack of internal stability and teach his quads and hamstrings and glutes to start to operate in an externally stabilized environment that again is augmenting what he does not have internally, we can then teach 
the quad, hamstring, and glute to be able to operate from this perspective that might allow him for greater ease into those ranges of motion actively. So forget him. I'm talking about. Let's talk about you and, okay. and why why there's yeah why you would choose uh, personally to do a 20 rep leg extension over a 20 rep leg press as far as your ability to build your build your quads. What give me your reasoning? Because the collateral for the weight that I would be using for high. the duration is too high. I think. Collateral meaning the fatigue uh, just, uh, and the damage, not the damage, but like, yeah, let's use damage for lack of a better term. The amount of recovery required on the hip joint, hmm. because to your point, as those quads and hamstrings and glutes start to fatigue, I'm spending a much more relative time in a fatigue state where the deeper musculature might be called upon. And if that fatigues, like I want to cross a threshold and then I'm out. Right. I want the threshold to be really high. I want to get there really quickly because I want, you know, those two reps from let's say three reps from seven to ten to be my effective working reps. Like uh, let's use the analogy of throwing darts. Let's do this. Uh, this is how I picture it in my brain. So darts like go up to like 180 or something. Right. And it's like on, like on like the Ocho in the middle of the afternoon. There's always like a way to the, the, the hype man announcer. One hundred and seventeen. It's like, dude, go have another one. But the good, you know, it's like a race to 180. So you throw your darts at the dartboard and you want to do it strategically in a way where you throw the least amount of darts to get up to 180, I believe. So why would, if that's the game, why would I throw ones, right? Where I can have effectively throw, what, 50, 50, 50, 150, uh, 30, I'm out. Right, so that's how I look at it. Is like, how many throws did it take? How accurate can I be in my execution that I can hit that mark and get out with minimal damage? Like, can I run into the fire, run out of the fire without choking smoke? Right. So that's kind of, and again, that's specific, and that's operating from a stance of a single system at play. Right. That's operating purely from a mechanical tension perspective and negating, you know, metabolic stress as a driver of hypertrophy which you can't, you can't negate. Muscle damage is a, seems to be a byproduct and not a stimulating factor. But to me, whenever I see exercises ranked from, you know, maybe leaning more towards metabolic stress versus uh, muscle damage, and like the continuum is very small. Like mm -hmm. the amount that one drives more towards the other is like a millimeter, a standard deviation one versus standard deviation in the other direction. If I look at a leg press, for example, which oftentimes will challenge the more glute hip extension rather than a a half totally. squat, which would be more knee extension. Yep. It's like, well, I'm working a lengthened position, which is going to, by its nature, tend to drive more mechanical tension. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I'm trying to reach this threshold of mechanical tension devoid of metabolic stress. Like I could get out of a leg press and not necessarily have a pump per se, because I'm doing eight reps. And the idea is to just cross that threshold session yeah. over session so, over session. So why is eight reps better than 20? So it still doesn't compute. Either way, you're still getting all these other. Because I could run into a I could run into a bottleneck of a system that's not the strength of my glutes or hamstrings or quads. When you're doing eights. When I'm doing eights, I'm less likely to hit a wall that's not that. What's the wall? Aerobic capacity. If I'm doing twenties, for me, I have no. So I mean, there's two options. I can circumvent this by building an aerobic capacity that doesn't limit my stimulus at 20 or I can avoid it and try and get in and out, stay low to the ground. If you're having a hard time doing set to 20 in a leg press, mm. you don't have the aerobic capacity to recover between workouts, period. Like 
acknowledging the, the requirement of the aerobic capacity in your ability to recover between sets and between workouts. Right. So if you have if you're someone who can't do sets of twenty okay. on a leg press, I'm going to speculate your aerobic capacity is in some way inhibiting your overall performance. Right. I think there would be a a collected bottleneck that doesn't exist exclusively in the aerobic capacity. I would say the aerobic capacity plus the inherent soft tissue stress that's going to come with 20s over 8s. If I can execute 8s with a high degree of accuracy and keep the load in the muscle away from soft tissue structures without having to compensate. You think you have less soft tissue compensation with 8s? Yeah, because this is my wheelhouse, right? This is, I'm going to, if I don't break form with sets of 6 on a squat, super heavy. You're you're a special case because like, if you're used to doing ones and twos, eights is a big stretch for right. you. Yeah, but I think for most people who are used to doing sixes and eights, mm. uh, I th- yeah, I think it's a different it's a different jump for you to do eight. You're talking like this is metabolic for you. We're, we're trading like your, your cardiovascular system for sets of eight um, compared to what it was three years ago. I would say, well, here's the thing, and this is where like one of my like a principle that I carry with me in moving into bodybuilding that I think is one of the big things that people miss that make bodybuilding harder and actually not more effective is understanding and differentiating breathing and bracing and the idea of breathing economy where it's like you know me i my breath and my brace the respiratory and muscular component of my brace under you know axial load let's call it barbell squatting is an inherent link where they're not so inherently linked because the requirement of a respiratory contribution to a brace in an externally stabilized environment is much less on a leg press. So I'm not, I'm very economical in the way I use my breathing to brace. Like most people have this very dramatic moment in between reps. And the more I fatigue, the more I rely on this. It's just yet another skill to develop though. What's that? It's just yet another skill to develop, right? Right. Just understanding like how much, because most people do this, that it's, you know, the scene in the movie where the bank vault is filling up with water and then there's just a little bit of daylight left. And they they Jacques Cousteau it down into the ocean. It's like, you don't need to take this full send it to the basement diaphragm fucking excursion to greatest. I've been the one preaching this. You know that like, the thing that changed for me toward the end of my career was I started to understand that the, the power of breathing. And when I'll do workouts now or, or for the last five years, my perceived effort is a fraction and I'll do sets of 20 all day. And everyone's like, how do you not breathe when you're doing that? It's, and it's not my, that my aerobic capacity is exceptional. It's simply learning how to control your breath. It's, right. a, it's an economy, as you say. Yeah. That's, it's a skill that... I train with all of my clients. And I think it's a requirement for someone who's a high-level athlete. Like if, if you're a bodybuilder, an aspiring bodybuilder, and you don't understand how to manipulate your, your breath to your advantage, you're missing a huge opportunity. And this is where I would say eights for me aren't an aerobic endeavor because I have that But delta. either should 20s. What's that? Either should 20s. Fair, but then what is the efficiency of that time in the gym? If I can drive the same amount of effective reps, like I, don't I think, think so it is. Here's the thing: I think time under tension is is a coefficient, right? So look at it as a as a coefficient. If the time is high, the tension by nature is lower, right? If the tension is high, the time by nature is lower, 
right? So there's an inverse coefficient, an inverse relationship between those two. Time under tension is a bodybuilding science. You're going to do 20s for a month, and then we're going to have this conversation again. Okay, yeah. I mean, if you're here for a month, I'll do it with you. I would would like to do that because I think it will give you a different perspective. And again, 20 is not a magic number. Sure. Maybe 15 for you. Sorry, Stan. Stan did that for a while. Where do you think he got it from? Yeah. Well, I mean, (laughs) maybe maybe Flex Wheeler. Um, but again, anyways, um, <laughs> love Stan. Yeah, Stan's amazing. Beauty. Um, but I've been, I've been doing that since 2006. Right. So the only thing is, and this is where the scientific brain in me is going to push back just because I fucking hate when you're right. Although years later, we always assume that you're just right. And you just sit there with like, I fucking told you, but it's, you know, the control for novelty versus the progression of the trajectory I was on. Right. Like that's always the thing is how do we know that twenties are going to provide something other than novelty Mm, in a program that's already kind of strictly equated for it. I don't disagree with your hypothesis. And I think here's what I think you should, what you should maybe take on is, the likelihood of a longer linear progression opportunity at 20 reps than at eight. So at eight, and experience this, at some point you're gonna run out of, of the ability to add more. Right. It's just like, you just fucking can't. And like, you know, then you could scale density, great. But at some point, like, yeah, and this is the idea of like, why does some guy have two leg extensions in his gym, right? At some point it runs out. Right. Um, so my, my suggestion is at 20, it won't run out. Like you can, you can like right now you may be doing six plates aside for sets of 20 and then in a month you're doing seven plates aside, eight plates aside. And eventually like you don't, there's, there's just more opportunity for linear progression, if that makes sense. Yeah, whereas whereas with weight, it just, it just, it just runs out. Yeah. Like you're, you're, it, it gets so heavy and not everyone's ever going to experience this, but there's a point where your squats are so heavy. Your leg press is so heavy. One, you can't put any more plates on Two, It feels like your bones are going to fucking snap because it's so heavy. So you run out of like just margin for, for putting more weight on. I think of it like an aircraft carrier. The runway is pretty short. So you got to get this bitch in the air. It's going to go in the ocean. Right. Then it's expensive payload. Right. Yes. It's going to snap. Yeah. I think that you'll run into that, right? Being as strong as you are like, and maybe, so maybe that's one of the reasons why I became so biased to it. But I mean, it's just a new, uh, it's a new experience, man. It's, it's definitely a different experience. Now from a takeaway perspective for someone who might be entering into this pursuit without a bodybuilding or without a powerlifting background and like just a, an ability to drive mass motor unit recruitment, which is something that I think, you know, the amount of co-contraction required for compound movements like squat bench and squat and deadlift, let's say primarily. Would you recommend starting someone at 20s or would you recommend starting someone at? Well, here's my logic. You can tell me if I'm right or wrong. Um, so my first uh, pursuit with people who are not um, exceptional or have an exceptional background, my, my, per, my, per, my first thing that I pursue in training is um, stability. So I want them to be able to um, be incredibly stable at the hubs and so therefore to, um, you know, if I want you to build your legs, the first thing I'm going to start you at is 20s, but it's not to stay there. Right. So you may get four weeks of 20s or three weeks of 20s, or and then it'll be, say we get three weeks of 20s, and then it'll be three sets of 20 and one set of six, and then it'll be two sets of 20 and two sets of six. And so we're, we're building, it's, or, or maybe the progression is three weeks of 20, three weeks of 15, three weeks of 12, three weeks of 10, three weeks of eight. And so there's a, there's a linear progression in either direction. Mm-hmm with the intention of starting at 20s simply for the 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 you know my brain goes to type 1 motor uh, muscle fibers um, slow twitch more associated with stability at the joint 
I'm, I'm, I'm inculcating the ability to maintain stability at this joint, trunk and spine and hips, obviously, uh, and then progressing them down in, in load. That's just like one example of how I frame it in my mind when someone's coming, hey, again, obviously you look at someone subjectively and you go, well, this is where you suck. Let's right. make that yeah, a strength. Yeah. But if someone came in and I knew very little about them, that would be my typical recommendation. That's lower body, upper body might be different. Yeah, and I think that offers two things. One, it follows a natural relationship. And so I think a natural relationship from a statistical perspective when graft is a bell curve, mm. right? You're like, oh, you're here. Well, the best way to get here is mm. right? So if you have someone who's like, all right, let's take you at 20s, let's go eights, increase intensity, let's you know drop intensity being a relative percentage of one rep max and come back down to eight. So I, I like that idea. Anything that follows a trend of a, a normal relationship. Yeah. Well, so with you, I would go, you know, let's do eights this week. And let's, let's, week, let's do tens. And you work up to 20s and then come back down. Yeah. Right. So it's like, it's like kind of meet you where you are now, take you where we want to go. And, and then we see along the way what's actually happening. And then, like you said today, brilliantly, it's like, well, I'm going to stay with this type of training until it stops adapting, until I stop making progress. And that's exactly it. Yeah. So if you're used to working at eight and we take you to 10, we take you to 12, we take you to 15, you see you getting good results at 15, don't change it. Stay there. And then when it's time to change, say, well, which direction feels like it's a better opportunity based on which one is is you know, uh, the least up or the least amount of stimulus necessary to make the greatest amount of progress. So if your endurance is exceptional at 15 reps, I'm not going to take you to 20. Don't, I don't need to make an endurance runner. If your, if your strength is inefficient, then maybe we'll take you back down. Right. So it's, I think it always has to be a dynamic thought process where you have tools and principles to make decisions. Yeah. And I think the dynamics of that thought process are going to be heavily weighted on the other exercises because like interference becomes a huge mm. overlooked. And again, my idea that like, hey, let's give bodybuilding a crack and see if we can do it in a simpler fashion. I think one of the principles that gets overlooked a lot is the idea of interference, where it's like, I want sheer signal. I don't want noise. Mm, totally. Right. And that's going to be one of the things that understanding how to go back to kind of my model that I'm operating from is like understanding clearly the headings of these different taxonomies of stimulus that I'm going for, where we're at. But it's like, I don't know, Lundy's got a bunch of switchers and things like that. It's like, mm -hmm. he doesn't take all of the sliders and go, oh, let's make turn this podcast totally, better. Let's yeah, turn exactly. them all the way up. It's so it's like notch. knowing how to like undulate, accommodate, compensate in a phasic structure where if one is high in, you know, inherently one has to be low. Man, right? For the longest time, and anyone who's ever done in my programs has seen this, because for the longest time, I only did two workouts for legs. And it was um, front squats, hack squats, leg extension was one workout. The other one was back squats, um, leg press, and lunges. And there was I just did that for years because it was like I have all the basic exercises. I became really freaking good at them, and I got really, really strong at them. And it wasn't complex, but I got better and better and better at it. And that just worked. It was like find the exercises that I know I want to do or I think I should do and become exceptional at them. And that was probably the best progress I ever made. Now, within that, there's so much variation, right? There's there's reps and sets and density and, and volume and all that stuff. But it was literally the same three exercises. Week one was this. Week two, it was about every five days. And that's just consistent. Like it was like it was Groundhog Day. And if it, was either, if it wasn't this one, it was that one. Simplified it for me. And it allowed me to just like be aware of how am I progressing? How is my skill first and foremost? Because if my skill is breaking down, then we'll adjust to that. And if not, then it's just like pursuit of either increased load or increased volume, increased density. I don't think many people have that beacon, right? That performance beacon. Because like, especially in the gym that has all the equipment the, under the sun, it's like 
you know, a certain if your leg press is on rollers versus and this has a certain bearing, or is it the Atlantis versus Cybex? It's like, well, these are two different mechanisms at play yeah. here. One is three plates. There's a leg press in here that's 35 degrees, an old Nebula one. Most people don't look at it and go like, like oh, I like this one. It's like, yeah, you like it because it's 70 plates. Physics, <laughs> because the gravity and horizontal displacement over yeah. vertical, you know, uh, vertical displacement rise over run is why you like it. So it's like I think that's one of the takeaways is like. And I think any framework operated at 100% consistency at 70% effectiveness is 100% more efficacious hmm. than something that runs at you know 100% efficiency but is also wildly inconsistent. Like I think of like a scale. Like if a scale is inaccurate, I don't care as long as it's the same scale, right? Like if you're if you're weighing yourself in stones, if you're weighing yourself in milligrams kilograms pounds whatever it's like oh it's a few pounds off it's like it will continue to be but it'll tell us whether or not it's going this way or this way mm -hmm. right rather than like you know working off what you think to be accurate scales but they're inconsistent units of measure they're uncalibrated units of measure where it's like at least ordering a framework and it's like you could talk about exercise order and then reps and sets but i think at the very least like there's a bigger meta picture to see is like we're talking about leg press consistently doing a leg press and incrementally deciding or deciding incremental progress across any number of measures of, of progress, right? We're not talking about going from leg press to hack squat to squat press to hip drive. Like we're not doing like a west side bodybuilding, constantly waving in novelty. We're talking about one thing. And I think people might get lost. Like, should I do eights or should I do tens? Like the real conversation is you should do fucking leg press every week. And um, finding the ones that work best for you. Right. Because, like, I see some people, man, it's funny, and you'll get this too, man. You see some people who go onto, like, a lat pull-down, and there's absolutely nothing happening at their lat whatsoever. You see other people go onto a lat pull-down, and it's, like, magic. It's, like, the whole lat just is, like, aggressively contracting. And this is an example. But some people can do, uh, you know, a hack squat and have incredible form and incredible ability to access that range. And then other people, they, the same person can do a squat and just be a disaster. So I think learning exercise selection, you know, to, to what you said is like, is very, very important. Like what fits your structure and what can you ultimately do well? This brings up this question is I have this, this approach of like, um, I like to do the things I do well and do them often. Like I call that like output, like let's, let's apply output. I want, I want to work really hard on these things all the while I'm bringing up the, the back end, right? So it's like output versus skill acquisition. So I'm really good at this, this, and this. I'm gonna do a lot of that. I'm gonna make those my primary output drivers. And then these other ones over here that I know I'm not so good at, or I lack stability, or I lack skill, and I'm gonna I'm gonna spend a good amount of time, maybe in the warm-ups, maybe in the post-workout, trying to bring up the back end. How do you approach um, pushing the high end versus bringing up the back end? Does that still come back to this like, um, you know, integrating function and action conversation we had earlier? Yeah, I mean, I think it's looking at the resources at your disposal. So like practicing a skill is going to be a different calibration against a different reference point of failure. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that that quickly can divide practicing skill versus training output, where it's like, if I'm going to practice a skill for most people, and, you know, if you're more advanced, you can get the deeper in the session. You can almost like purposefully remove um, resources at your availability. And when I say resources, I mean, you know, the, uh, the ability for muscular co-contraction to occur. Like if I want to get good at the skill of squatting, which, you know, as you alluded to, has a high demand of internal stability, which stability and skill are inherently linked. The, usually the greater demand for internal stability, the higher skill movement it is. 
So I'm going to put that in the beginning of a session for 99% of people. If I see it later in a session, maybe I'm trying to tax their ability to execute under, you know, duress, like under some sort of physical or mental physiological um, duress. But majority of people, I'm going to prime that environment to learn. And it's going to be, you know, my warmups are going to be structured around getting this skill learned. And the way we do that is you want to practice good practice, right? Um, and there's there's different ways from like a, a motor learning standpoint, this, not to go too, too deep into the cerebellum, but like, you know, using the visual field as a means of learning, practicing in front of a mirror versus practicing and not in front of the mirror versus watching video and having it register from shorter to long term memory. So you get an idea of the feel of that movement, right? So using the environment and preparing the brain to learn rather than preparing the body to train. And I think that's a very fundamental difference in the way on, you on that continuum. I had a great workout or a great place to train in Costa Rica where the squatting was actually on rocks and not, not like big rocks, but like, you know, the little like white rocks you see in like the garden. Right. So I was literally standing on these rocks and it was this interesting, like I'm obviously not training for hypertrophy. It was this really right. interesting exploration of like proprioception. So it starts with, eyes open and like paying attention to like how unstable the surface is. And I could have stood on some like flat rocks, but I was like, no, this is, this seems interesting. I'm going to play with this. And so it goes from like open eyes standing on these unstable rocks and I'm wearing no shoes. So it's barefoot. And then it's like, okay, now try this again and close your eyes. And it's just these, these huge dimensions of in intentionality, like bringing your, your presence so deep into what your body is doing in this moment. And then it's like, can I get up to a few hundred pounds on my back with like my eyes closed and this incredibly odd, unstable ground. It was really interesting uh, exploration because you know, obviously requiring a huge amount of, of internal awareness and presence and skill to be able to do it. It was, it was a fun little game. Again, I wouldn't suggest anyone who's bodybuilding to do that, but um, it was fun. Yeah, I mean, and that goes back to the, the movement brain, right? Like you can begin to map with a high degree of accuracy what systems are at play to offset. You know, you have maybe a, a, a higher demand across the board. Your vestibular cerebellum is going to be at a higher alert. Your cerebrocerebellum, which causes the actual motor pattern to deploy for your squat, is going to be no, non-contributing because you don't have a motor pattern for squatting on rocks. So you're, it's almost like the idea that if, you know, you lose a sense, you get heightened other senses, right? Well, so because I had bare feet, I had so much sensory input coming through my feet. Right, it that's was the really spinocerebellar input, yeah. right? So in a way to overload a particular system, you just have to knock one out, mm. right? So if you were to close your eyes, well, now you're just left with that spinocerebellar because you have no cerebrocerebellar input for motor patterns for rock squatting. You can retrofit your normal squat, but you know when you're on these uneven surfaces, there's a heavy reliance on these other two. Right. So you can mechanistically start to dissect these environmental constraints and start to overload specifically. And this is, you know, this is plays huge in, in rehabilitation from injury and surgery. This plays huge into optimizing sport performance. But again, this is when neuromapping becomes so effective when we start to look at what exactly is going on when you're creating this unstable environment. What are the demands on the brain to learn? Right. Because guess what? It's like you now have a, a robust, a a, a stronger input now when you go back to calling on that uh, cerebrocerebellar motor pattern for your squat because you know oh, like oh okay i can go back and use this again but i also have a greater heightened awareness of my vestibulo i have a heightened awareness and input from my spinocerebellar tracks so it's like not to say that squatting on stones is the best way to build your squat 
but you know if you're squatting 600 for sets of 10 where do you go right so you start to look elsewhere past just like the peripheral inputs and start to look at more central uh, processing so it's i mean to your original question about practicing uh you know skill versus training output it's like ultimately calibrating against a different reference point of failure because that's a conversation that never gets had with rpe and rir and percentage-based training and all this it's like what is failing Right? Is it something that's more coordination in nature and more, um, you know, more technique in nature, or is it something that's ultimately more, you know, physiological, metabolic? We can't possibly turn over another muscle contraction due to the current metabolic state of the muscle. Mm. Right? You're just poisoning it with hydrogen ions and lactic acid and so on and so forth. So, when we practice skill, we want to stay well clear of a technical failure. Where we train output is we want to fly really close to the sun of something that looks like a metabolic failure in the case of higher volume, right? Or something that looks like a pure output failure. You want to fail with technique not being the bottleneck, essentially. So that's like, those are two different measuring sticks of success when setting up rep set scheme in the day, but also training frequency throughout a week. I have someone learning how to squat, I could squat them three, four times a week because of the stability that underpins the ability to train that skill as output is not allowing us to go to any sort of place that requires a, a prolonged recovery protocol, right? It's this that just needs to relearn and this half, these processes happen very quickly, right? You see a lot of people go to, you know, f high frequency training sessions. Crossfitters are a great example of that to yeah. become so well skilled across so many um, mediums in, in fitness requires just learning, right? And using the uh, principle of interleaving I could cram for a test or I could study 20 minutes here, go play guitar and then do 20 minutes again and go for a walk and 20 minutes again. Interleaving seems to be a better way to actually learn. I don't know how well skill. you know Dr. Huberman, but do you know who he is? Uh, he was at Stanford when I was there. Yeah, I don't know him personally. Still there. Um, did a podcast probably about a month ago now on learning. And it's this idea of like um, condensed 10-minute sessions of just like dense repetitions, like do it over, do it again, do it again, do it again. And he says, just says, it doesn't matter if you're feeling, it's like the self-correction of, of feeling what it feels like. Dense, um, dense like 10 minute practice sessions is the best way to acquire learning. And like, okay, well I could do that multiple times a day if I was actually trying to learn a skill. And that's really interesting. So that's that's what like the neuroscience says is the best way to acquire a skill. Yeah. Anyways, switching, switching gears. Tell me about um, Prescript and what you're teaching. Yeah, so right now we're running level one, level two, open for sale for the January semester. So those courses will start January 11th. Well, obviously one's prerequisite for the other. Level one goes over, um, you know, function, action, shoulder, hip, and spine, where level two goes deeper into the, sort of the core tenets of function, breathing, ventilation, and the biomechanics. So we don't cover really the biochemistry, which is kind of the common practice of breathing, but how is it that breathing can start to improve our positions for Makes lifting? Makes me happy, you know that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I really enjoy that because that connects a lot of dots, like looking at the structure so function relationship and understanding that I can look at a shoulder, a hip and a spine and infer with the wavering level of accuracy what the function might be. But you show me a rib cage and a pelvis and I'm looking at a transparency. I'm looking through it at the function of the diaphragm or the pelvic diaphragm. So that's really that, that I like that course because it, it you know, it it allows you to take these more peripheral concepts that we talk about at level one and superimpose them over more central principles and allows you to create a very multidimensional working model of a human body that you can adapt to, to any skill, any level, any sport, any mm. endeavor. Twelve months ago, I was like scouring the Internet for someone who has done a course on the mechanics of breathing. I was like, nobody's done this. And the only guy that I found was Bill Hartman. No. Yeah, Bill Hartman. Yeah, that sounds right. He's the only one that I was like, he hasn't anything on this. And I'm yeah. so glad to hear you're doing this yeah. because 
personal trainers, this needs to be a foundation of everything they understand. Like even before I would say, you know, my, my logic is always breathing and walking mechanics. So those are your foundation, as you know. Yeah. It's like, okay, if I can't understand breathing and walking mechanics, the rest of it goes out the window. Yeah. So uh, I'm so glad that you're doing that. And uh, I think it should be level one, but. Well, <laughs> yeah, so we have I mean, plans with, you know, everyone talks about raising the industry standard, but there's a lot of red tape in order to do so. So right now we're working on, by the time this is out, we'll have NASM and NSCA uh, CEU accreditation for all of our courses which has allowed those people who are within the governing bodies of personal training to be able to take these courses to continue their sort of licensure and certification or accreditation. But next year we're going to be um, releasing the PSPT course, which will be entry-level personal training, when I say entry-level with air quotes, because it will be the goal of that will to elevate the industry standard and begin to create a vein of thinking that carries you through the level one, level two, so start to indoctrinate from the get-go trainers with the idea and the awareness around the importance of these concepts around like the three hubs of stability, shoulder, hip, and spine, and then the central you know, the central hubs of human function being the rib cage and the pelvis being these peripheral expressions of like the deeper function of our, our diaphragm and our and our gait cycle ventilation and, and gait cycle mechanics or biomechanics. So that's the that's the down the road progression of the from the business side. So, you know, again, we can re, we can release a course and, and say we're raising the industry standard or we can fill out tens of thousands of pages of forms and pay a bunch of accreditation fees and go through the tape to actually make it happen. So we're trying to do both. So that's really the goal. Um, so level one and level two are running in January. Signups for the level one are open now. Level two, you'd, you'll be made aware because you're already going to be uh, in our pipeline for those coaches who've gone through the level one. We have a barbell, a barbell course, which is focused specifically on really largely about what we kind of talked about today extrapolating out from the leg press obviously and how that fits in a you know progression regression adaptation and optimization model around the big three so squat bench and deadlift going through everything from assessment to implementation and then we have skill acquisition courses uh, killian hamilton he's been on the he's been on the show in the past going through yeah. the cognitive associative and autonomous model of really like athlete management right so being able to have a metacognition and drawing clear borders around what matters in your training which is something that killian's really good at like how do you make your program all signal and no noise mm -hmm. right so understanding these stages of learning uh in a very um actionable way that you can implement this you know very theoretical almost um you know behavioral science model i think it was actually a behavioral scientist out of stanford in like the 1980s that came up with this model of skill acquisition but how can you apply it to exercise and more broadly, like open up your horizons to apply it to any skill. Um, and then we have a programming course coming out in March of next year, uh, a breathing biochemistry course that's coming out uh, in the second quarter of next year as well. And we have an Olympic weightlifting course that's running currently on an evergreen fashion. So understanding again, progression, regression, adaptation, optimization, and assessment for snatch and clean and jerk. And that's taught by um, Jordan Junta, the co-founder of the company. So. A lot of fun stuff in the pipe, man. Amazing, man. That Appreciate sounds so it. great. And uh, always great to chat, man. Dude, we could have done it for a couple more I hours. think we might. Thank you so much for joining us today, ladies and gentlemen. I, As I say with all guests, I strongly suggest that you take this information and you apply it to the subset of information you already know and believe to be true. Everything that I say that they say can be useful to you in many contexts. You just have to start thinking for yourself. Instead of taking what we say as gospel, my suggestion to you in all scenarios 
is take it and apply it and see how it fits your life. Because ultimately, when it comes to training, when it comes to building muscle, losing fat or anything like that, context is everything. So my objective with this podcast is really to help you sift through the noise to start giving you better ability to make decisions. Instead of just giving you rules and gospel and say, hey, do this. My suggestion is you take everything we say and you apply it to your context. and You see, where does this fit for me? Does it apply? Now, oftentimes I'll try to give you suggestions as to where this might apply for you. So with Dr. Jordan's information today, so much value, so much wisdom. And as always, take it, think about it, say, does this apply to me? Am I similar to him or am I fitting into this box that we're talking about? And if not, then that's okay. But at least having that information is useful to you. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. This and so much more value coming at you in weeks to come. Hope you're enjoying this podcast. A slightly new framing of the podcast as we move toward ultimately aspiring for the highest level of human potential, right? So what does that look like? What does it look like when we say we're aspiring for the highest level of human potential? and all of the different systems that go into that. So if you're someone who is trying to be the best business, try to be the best parent, trying to be the best physically, best bodybuilder, the best endurance athlete, whatever it may be, there's commonalities amongst all of these things. There's, there's common elements that every human being needs to thrive. Mindset, physical movement, aerobic fitness, stress resilience, sleep, nutrition. And we're going to dig into all that and exactly what it takes to thrive and live your greatest life in a body you love. Thank you once again to realmushrooms.com for sponsoring the podcast, the highest quality mushrooms on the market. Guys, if you're not, if you are using mushrooms, period, get them from real mushrooms. I promise you notice a difference. And as I said in the beginning, the three that I've been experimenting with lately, uh, before bed, in fact, whereas I've always used mushrooms in the morning, lately I've been experimenting a little bit more with a, a little bit more of a diverse array before bed. So the three grams of ratio, three grams of lion's mane, and three grams of cordyceps, before bed seems to really give me a new level of sleep. My HRV gets a huge bump, which is indicative of, of recovery. And uh, I just feel better. I feel like I get to sleep quicker. I feel like my deep sleep actually is almost probably 50% better. Went for about an hour and 30 to almost two and a half hours of deep sleep just from adding these three mushrooms before bed. And as I said, full disclosure, I also add in about a scoop, uh, so 25 to 30 grams of collagen protein as well before bed, which I really like for helping calm the nervous system and improve um, the, the blood sugar regulation through the night with the amino acid glycine specifically. So I uh, hope you enjoy the show, ladies and gents. Head over to realmushrooms.com. Use the code BEN to get hooked up with 30% off. And if that code is, uh, if it's your first time using it, use BEN. If it's your second time using it or subsequent times, you can still get 20% off using the code MUSCLE. Have a great day. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.